You are listening to EE Times on Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. In today's podcast, we hear from Embedded.com editor-in-chief Nitin Dahad, who attended the Industry 4.0 Summit in Porto, Portugal, interviewing executives handling manufacturing, operations, and IT at LAM Research, Micron, and Wolfspeed. Here's Nitin's first interview with LAM Research's corporate VP, David Freed. David, hello. Hi, I'm glad we got a chance to catch up. So we're talking here at, at the MES Industry 4.0 Summit in Portugal, and uh, you talked a little bit about enabling machine intelligence or utilizing machine intelligence. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that means. Uh, everybody here wants to speak a lot about AI and artificial intelligence. In, in our world, we, we discuss equipment intelligence. Um, trying to enable machine learning and digitization and, and these techniques and technologies to really make our equipment uh, more self-aware, self-maintained, self-adaptive. And so I, I spoke at, in the presentation a lot about what those technologies mean and how we're using them to get uh, more availability of our equipment in the fabs, uh, better results, but also uh, faster maintenance, simpler, more integrated maintenance. Uh, so that was one of the big topics of my presentation today. And I think equipment intelligence for us uh, has become a, a key differentiator in our equipment and the cost of ownership of our equipment, but also the quality of the results from our equipment. And what are the, the key, you talked about them, but I, I think what I found uh, quite interesting was that um, it's about those tools, uh, everything we talk about in AI and Industry 4.0, is those tools doing those those jobs for you. Yeah, so um, we, we got in my presentation more into what I consider the semiverse solutions, and we're in this quandary in the semiconductor industry where making predictive models and, and making tools and software, we can't purely rely on physical solutions and physical simulation because the complexity of these processes is so high. The simulation technology is, is there, it's coming around, but it's computationally quite quite time-consuming. And so we can't entirely rely on, on physics. But at the other end of the spectrum, we also can't entirely rely on data. Mm. Because again, these processes are very, very highly dimensional. Many different process parameters, many different options for recipes. And we're never going to have enough data to fully canvas that set of dimensionality and use that to drive machine learning and AI solutions. And so we philosophically, we really focus sort of in the middle of that spectrum where we're able to join physical simulation and, and engineering experience and in intuition with data solutions, machine learning, AI-based data solutions in what I call the little data world, where we're never going to have quite enough data to fully canvas the space, but we can still make extremely good value-added predictions in process behaviors. And that's part of the virtual process development that you talked about. Yeah, so absolutely. So putting those two pieces together are key to what we've done in virtual process development. I spoke a bit in the talk about the paper we've published in Nature recently. And there we've really coupled sort of the, the best of human-based engineering and intuition and experience and, and modeling with the best of AI and machine learning optimization. Because both of those things factor into different phases of process engineering. And what we've discovered through that work is where these tools are most efficient, most effective. Because at the end of the day, 
it has to drive the value. For us, the value is the time to solution, the development of a process, and the delivery of a, a high-quality yielding process to our customers. What we typically find is that the engineering intuition, modeling, and experience are very, very useful, very effective early in a process engineering exercise where you can make significant strides toward, towards a target and towards a specification uh, very quickly using those tools and techniques. But in the optimization phase of process engineering, which often is the most time consuming, um, that's where machine learning and AI just excels, where you have some data, you've reduced the dimensionality of the problem with the initial work, and what you need is very fast, very efficient, multivariate optimization these are places where AI and machine learning really excel. The interesting part of that work is exactly when to use the right tool and the right capability to drive a faster time to solution. And this is what we've been hearing in the EDA world quite a lot over the last year and a half anyway, with the, the AI and EDA and optimizing. You, one of the messages I got from the EDA companies is you're not replacing the engineers, you still need them, you need their expertise, but you, you can use the, the intelligent computing to, to actually get to that result faster. Yeah, so we have definitely found that it's not about replacement, it's not an either or. What we've found is um, by coupling these AI and ML techniques, the simulation techniques, all these different virtualization and compute techniques, by coupling them with the engineering experience and intuition, we actually get a result that is much better than either one alone. And I think that that's the most important aspect here is that the combination of, of human intuition, human experience with physical simulation, with ML and AI is much more powerful than any one of those individually. Um, and so that, that's, been the, that's been the learning. That's what's published in that paper. But that's, um, that's what we're putting into work. That's what we're putting into practice in our process engineering discipline within LAM research, but also moving into the hardware engineering, designing designing chambers and designing reactors, we're following the same process. And before we move away from that, I think what I quite liked was from the from the Nature paper that uh, you you presented some you know, benchmarks and you know, how much time it takes for a, a junior engineer, senior engineer, and then uh, a computer algorithm, and then yeah, where do you find the tr right trade-off? Yeah, it, that was a, a very interesting part of the study where the best process engineers we have, the most senior, most experienced process engineers we have, they're, they're quite good at, at solving these process engineering problems. Uh, but even, even against the best of the best, the joint, the collaboration between human and AI was, is able to basically reduce time to solution by about 50% in almost every case when we use them together correctly. I also, we also had some fun with other benchmarks of non-process engineers trying to solve the same problem. And, and obviously that took much longer, was much more expensive. And the interesting thing is looking just using an AI solution, just a machine learning algorithm was actually one of the worst possible scenarios. An untrained algorithm going into this problem does extremely poorly against the combination of a human and the AI techniques. Yeah, and I think you, you presented a, a cost comparison and it was like, was it seven times more ex expensive with the computer, 720K? Yeah. So the, the untrained algorithm was about 7x the expert process engineer. And then the combination of process engineer and AI is, is roughly 50% less than that. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about the, the semiverse solutions bit of your job, uh, because this is something that your CEO presented at ITF in uh, Bel Belgium last year. Uh, where, where are you on that? 
a lot of these techniques and what we've what we discussed in the nature paper but also a lot of the physical simulation and modeling these all go into our semiverse solutions portfolio today that portfolio of products and systems and tools those are being utilized internal within lamb research to improve our equipment improve our processes and deliver functional processes and equipment and meeting customer spec to our customers faster. And so essentially the, the main objective today is to use these techniques internally, drive uh, a, a better quality result to our customers faster, uh, lower cost of ownership, faster time to solution. Uh, that's really the objective today. As we go forward in the future, there will be other products and services that we're including in the in the external portfolio under the Semiverse Solutions brand that will enable our customers to do similar types of work in their own fabs. And the message I got from that was when, when it was announced is that smaller companies can, can get access to, to all of this capability for cents as opposed to you know, having to go and do physical verification at tens and thousands or hundreds and thousands of dollars of cost. Yeah, one of the things that I mentioned in today's talk is that the ability to develop in the virtual domain is it's much more cost effective it's much more time effective but one of the most important parts is it, it almost it's more inclusive to the entire engineering community worldwide we can have engineers whether they're at LAM or, or a customer anywhere doing this type of engineering and optimization in a location that has no access to fabrication equipment that has no access to a fab or any of the measurement metrology because they're doing it in the virtual domain by, by doing this, we have essentially opened the doors to innovation in, in areas, communities, segments of the population where it was previously just off limits. And so to me, that's extremely exciting, expanding the reach of this type of technology and the reach of uh, this type of engineering to essentially underserved communities or communities that were just not accessible at the time. Well, David, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this. And now, his interview with Micron's head of manufacturing IT operations, Didier Chavez. Didier, hello. Hi, Nitin. Nice to meet you. Now, tell me, you, you made a presentation at the MES Industry 4.0 Summit here in Portugal, and you, you talked about some, some sort of new concept for this audience anyway, Industry 5.0. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about your operations. I think you mentioned you had 470,000 sensors across 30 factories. Tell us how that's all feeding your operations. Yes, Nitin, actually, it's it's a pretty complex environment made of uh, 13 one, three factories. Some of them are front-end, highly automated, 95% automation. The remaining factories are what we call assembly and test. Uh, those factories are a little bit less automated, nevertheless, all in all, we have adopted not only the automation concept of, of 3.0, but also the what we call the digital concept of 4.0. And, and henceforth, we have provided these factories with a very significant number of sensors, taking you know, images, videos, temperatures, pressures, some are environmental sensors, and, and we collect all that information mostly for process controls. Actually, an interesting statistics, which I forgot to mention during my speech, is that we have 280 million process control touch points in the 13 factories. And so all that is, is really 
being provided to multiple analytical models that could run on-site or in the cloud. And in return, they will provide actionable events where you may have to put a lot on hold or a machine on hold or simply statistics or key performance indicator, essentially. So it's, it's very, very complex to say the least. And this is part of your industry 4.0 or, or a sort of smart manufacturing strategy. So do you think you're uh, ahead of the game? Because we heard a lot in many of the, pr the earlier presentations, uh, especially from the speaker from the World Economic Forum, that uh, people not not really making the most of their uh, industry 4.0 systems and they're not scaling. You seem to have scaled quite significantly. Well, Nitin, it is known that the semi-industry is a little bit of ahead of the remaining industries, for sure. It is an industry whereby automation is, to us, an amazing opportunity to provide uh, efficiencies, process controls. We have also, we, we, we manage capacity to the best we can. And it is true that this 4.0 would not would, would not have been able to be executed or to be deployed without analytical models. And I think that that's where <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a concept that is a little bit difficult to explain, but that's, that's what I try to explain today is that we believe at Micron that um, there is a 5.0 sorts of revolution. I don't know if we can call it revolution, but it, it is the... Um, you know, it, it would be the entire artificial intelligence concept that that has, has come in phases, right? And, and the first phase is, is really interesting because everybody is talking about AI nowadays, but it really started already 10 years ago with advanced analytics. And, and so if you, if you connect, if, if you combine all these IoT device, all these sensors with advanced analytics, that's when you started to do really advanced process controls in the factories. And that was the first phase of AI. The second phase of AI, we often do not talk much about it, is, is the intelligence robots. And that, that's the whole evolution of how very basic auto-guided vehicles started to make their appearance on the shop floor 10, 15 years ago. But now those robots are actually very sophisticated. And then we have generative AI, which is the, the, the third phase. So when you think about that, intelligence analytics, intelligent robots, and now intelligence collaboration, isn't that enough to make it a revolution? I'm not sure if I can answer that question, but but really, I think it's it's a lot to digest, and it's it's I think very soon it could be the equivalent of of a, of a revolution like we have known through 3.0 and 4.0. We are going through an era of AI and generative AI hype, so I'm guessing that we could be then looking at something different in in Industry 4.0 that could make it that that 5.0. Absolutely. And it's because the generative AI is, is the phase, the third phase of AI to us. We think it's, it's really the third phase that has made 
AI, this new acronym that everybody wishes to use, right? You remember when IoT came 20 years ago, everybody was like, I was like, what is IoT? And then we, we even talked about IIoT, industrial. This was a buzzword. And I, I think with generative AI, AI has become a buzzword. So if it is a buzzword, does it mean it's a revolution? Could be. But I think uh, buzzwords then turn into some reality and there might be some reality. And I think you use, you use some examples in your presentation. Can you just give us a couple of examples of those implementations of 5.0 and what you're doing? Absolutely. So take advanced analytics as an example. So what we could do, what we do today is prescriptive analytics on equipment, right? So we, we, we try to... So just hang on, you talked about predictive and then you talked about prescriptive. So the difference between predictive and prescriptive as well. Yes. Exactly. So from an equipment maintenance perspective, you can predict when a maintenance is due, right? You can also avoid it maintenance you could push out a little bit that maintenance and that that's when you start to become prescriptive so the idea is is the machine talking back to you and let you know what should be changed in terms of recipe for instance so that you can push out a little bit the maintenance uh, and that can help let's assume you have to finish the quarter you have a target to meet and you wish to push the machine a little bit to the extreme there are ways to do that right that's what we call prescriptive maintenance as an example Another good example is process controls. The idea is, is to be able to collect all those sensors, that sensor data, run that information through a streaming platform, run analytical models on the edge close to the machine in your data center in the factory or in the public cloud, all, all three possibilities, and then come back with essentially results that would enable you to take some actions on the floor because you could predict that a lot could be could be compromised quality-wise and, and you should put that lot on hold. So these are, are two very key uh, example of use cases of 5.0, essentially AI. On the robot side, we talked a little bit about the robot evolutions as well. On the generative AI, because it's so new, we don't have yet very good use cases in the factories, but it's coming, right? One, one example that I mentioned this morning was, for instance, you take an SOP, you take a, a standard operating procedures, you run the content, the content through generative AI, and it will, it will provide you with a very nice summarized checklist of tasks for the operator. And then you could run that through, you could render that through a, a, an AR, AR capabilities, for instance, augmented reality capabilities for the operator, as an example. That's, that's right. And uh, I think one of the key things we keep hearing this morning as well is the digital thread that runs through it. And uh, basically, that data needs to be flowing through the system and used at every point for the right things. Is that right? Actually, I'm, I was mentioning that. I didn't. I, I forgot to mention digital digital thread. But when you think about the source of your information is coming from the floor operators inputting data into your systems, your, your factory systems, equipment, equipment data, extremely important. And if you remember on my, on my slide, I was showing very clearly how the equipment automation layer would actually provide all that information, sensor information. And so that's where the digital thread is actually starting. It goes into this gigantic repository, big data platform. And then from there, you can 
execute analysis. Uh, but when we take action on the result of the analysis, that's where you the digital threat continues because you actually circle the loop. You go back to your shop floor controls and you tell your MES systems that you need to take an action. So you, you, you see the digital threat going into a circle, right? So that's that's really the concept here. And did you talk about digital twins and how you're using those at Micron? Okay, from a planning perspective, we do have a digital twin. What I do, what I have mentioned this morning is that digital twin is also a technology that is being analyzed in order to configure a fleet of robots. So what you could do is you could look into how robots would be deployed on the floor. You could look into how they would move around and then you can set up, essentially have uh, a standardized GUI in order to configure those robots. So this is another example of digital twin. And now, what excites you most at Micron uh, that's going to be implementing over the next 12 to 18 months? Or critical manufacturing MES implementation itself. Very exciting. Very exciting. When you think about it, it's it's modernizing uh, our entire MES landscape for the uh, assembly and test factories. So it's it's very challenging, but at the same time, a very exciting project. And, and the, the point of the MES is basically to make everything more optimized and more efficient. Is that right? Exactly. Simplify the landscape, replace the legacy systems we have. That's, that's the idea. Absolutely. Didier, thank you very much. You're welcome, Nitin. It was a pleasure. And finally, Wolfspeed's SVP of Global Fab Operations, Missy Stegall, and CIO, SVP of IT Manufacturing and Product Engineering, Priya Amakar. I'm Nitin Dahad, and I'm here at the MES Industry 4.0 Summit in Porto, in Portugal. And I'm talking to Missy Stigal and Priya Almalkar of Wolfspeed, who gave a very interesting presentation here at the conference on the scaling up of the new silicon carbide fab, 200 millimeter silicon carbide fab. So I'm going to ask them a few questions about the challenges in developing that. Uh, so hello, Missy, and hello, Priya. Hello. Thanks for having us today. We're really excited yeah. to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great opportunity for us to showcase what we have been able to do. So looking forward to our conversation here. Let's start with the first thing. Just tell us in, in terms of the grand scheme of things that you talked about this being the first fully automated 200 millimeter silicon carbide fab, or, or the only one in the world. And you've got that up in three years during pandemic. What are the challenges in enabling that? Maybe Missy, we'll start with you. Sure. So I want to highlight that I think our team has done a really great job. Our facilities team came up with a plan to build off-site, to bring in parts so that we could rapidly build up this factory. Part of the challenges that we have today is really just ramping at this point. So we had a ribbon cutting last April, and today we are running material in the factory. And now it's really about how fast can we scale, how quickly can we ramp the factory. And, and the question is, the reason you were able to do it so quickly is because you had a real collaboration between IT and operations. So Missy, sorry, Priya, Priya, tell me a little bit about uh, what you had to do. Yes, absolutely. So obviously the collaboration was there. What we did is we started with a lab where we did automation. So we had to customize the templates for how we automate for a 300 millimeter versus 200 millimeter. And that's where our factory team and the IT team started working together. Prior to while the factory was being built, we had a lab where we could already do this collaboration and prove it out that we can do it. And we took every process module, we built it for each process module, and then we were able to scale effectively as soon as the factory came. 
And, and I guess there may, may be some challenges. Uh, who wants to talk about some of the challenges? I'll highlight some of the challenges. I think what's really exceptional about this factory is we took 300 millimeter technology and we brought it down to 200 millimeter tools. And yeah. so those tools today in most factories have robotics or automation, but it's a silicon-based robotic or automation. And so now we've had to go in and work from an overhead delivery to be able to handle silicon carbide. So silicon carbide is the fourth hardest in the world. So it's also very brittle. And so part of our challenges have been, how do we handle it? How do we load some of the tools? Other pieces of this are, while silicon is quite known in the industry, we've actually had to understand how this impacts our consumables. So our tools are actually behaving slightly different than silicon semiconductor. And so that's some of the challenges that we've been working through as part of the process. And then Priya really highlighted the great work from the team of working offsite while the factory was being built to get this automation in delivery. So we actually have an R&D kind of automation lab that the team still works in today. And we're using that experience to actually help build out the JP in Siler City, which will be the world's largest materials fab that we recently announced. And I think some of the other challenges we had because of the timing, right? We started at the very beginning of the pandemic and being able to fly in our providers and partners was not, we were not able to do that. But we really worked through making sure that, one, I think remote support was obviously there. We also you know, evolved into capabilities using AR, VR, so that we could really partner and, and work through that. And last but not least, it was also the, the automation team that had, we, we got approval to have some part of the team fly in, and they were able to pilot and work together and, and deploy that as well. That's quite impressive. And the other big thing is it, it, it's all very connected because you all did it online. So what are the cybersecurity challenges? Some of the cybersecurity challenges, obviously, not only just for the factory, but uh, considering that we also build our own material. So we, are, we have high IP restrictions. So making sure that we have the right governance strategy, tools, and right team to be able to deliver that was really important. So that was the foundation that we built, making sure that the strategy was defined, the tools were implemented before we did the rollout uh, on a mass, mass scale. And, and now, you know, the silicon carbide, yeah, it's very much, there is a you know, s supply demand issue. You are, you've built this for scale. So what, what are you doing to scale this up? So I think where we're headed today is time, time is an energy or is really what we're working against. And um, we need to go raise some investment capital, right? So Siler City, the world's largest materials factory is, is underway. And um, we have plans for phase one, to, to get done. Um, as part of that, that will be what allows the Mohawk Valley site. So the new site that we're talking about in New York, that's what's going to allow that factory to ramp. We've also recently announced the intention to build a site in Saarland, Germany, which will then be the world's largest silicon carbide 200 millimeter factory. But part of that, we're waiting on IPSI funding from Germany. So we're working quite closely with the German government, with the European Commission to get that funding that's going to allow us continue to scale as silicon carbide is very much in demand, and it's really what's going to power the possibilities, specifically the electric vehicles. So, so what, what, what's next? You're, you're, you're already working on the IT plans for Saarland? Yes, we are. So that is why when we started this building our Mohawk Valley factory, we chose an architecture that we could really scale. That's why we did the upfront investment. So it is easier. We are going to do a copy exact into Saarland and that allows us to continue our accelerated journey. Missy and Priya, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.